just one weekend to a new series that we're doing calling Conversations. Uh, I made this slide and I apologize for it. It doesn't look good. <laughs> uh, but this is the idea we're talking about. We're talking about prayer uh, and basically how we kind of want to demystify and remystify the idea of prayer. Uh, that prayer can be this like kind of weird thing that we do as Christians that also it's sort of it's our it's our fundamental sort of base thing that we have as a means of communication. Um, and what I really want to do is, I, I think it's so funny, it's like we'll, we'll pray during a church service, we'll do that. If you went to Sunday school, you may have been taught to kind of like close your eyes, fold your hands, uh, and that's sort of the posture of prayer. Uh, but the true posture of prayer is just conversation. In fact, I think the very definition of prayer uh, is a conversation with God where the only requirement is that you're present. It's a conversation with God where the only requirement is that you're present. Uh, so that kind of takes the fear out of it. How many times if you're in a public place and someone prays, maybe it's at a Thanksgiving table, maybe it's at a church, it's at a corporate function or something, and it's this sort of like, it, it's this like position of honor. Like, would, would you say the prayer? And then you pray and you, you bow your head and then you use the biggest words you know. Uh, and then you also kind of throw in it, it, all sorts. My favorite uh, tradition are the little more charismatic folks. And it's just like a Father God, Lord, Father, Lord, God, God Almighty. God is not going to forget his name. So you don't have to close your eyes and say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, he's not, he's not going to lose you. You're not going to lose him. Um, so prayer is simply being present with God. Uh, it's a conversation in which, have you, have you ever been in a circle of friends, maybe you're at a party or something, and you're all talking, and you don't say a single word, and yet you still feel like a valid part of that conversation. You walk away going, I was, if I had left that, something would have been different there. That's, uh, it's very essence, that's what prayer is. It's just kind of coming into the, and understanding that God's all around and just sort of going like, okay, God, you're here, you're in this place, uh, and I, I did not know. That's my favorite story in all of scripture, and if you've been here long, you've probably heard me tell the Jacob story like 20 times, uh, but I'm obsessed with the idea that Jacob is this character in the Bible and his name literally means liar. So he's not starting off well, but his name is Liar, uh, and he gets that name, and he's named that right from the very beginning. It's actually heel, because he's holding on to his brother's heel, his twin brother uh, Esau's heel as he comes out. But he's named Liar right away, and he kind of fulfills that prophecy. Uh, he lies to his brother, he steals his inheritance, he lies to his father, he steals his inheritance. And then basically what happens is his brother catches wind that Jacob has tried to steal his inheritance, and so he's out to kill him. Uh, in ancient Near East stuff, this was like worthy of death. Uh, going on. So uh, Jacob flees, and in the midst of this flee, and I love this because it's not like in the midst of Jacob's really great times or like these shiny, he's going to church a bunch, he's praying a bunch. It's in the midst of like the worst, he's done the worst thing uh, that he'll do in his life in stealing that inheritance, and he's on the run. And while he's on the run, he has this dream. Uh, and, and he lays down in this place, and he has this dream, and he sees a ladder, and he sees angels coming both up and down from the ladder. And when he wakes up, he looks around, and he says, surely God was in this place, and I, I did not know. And then he builds a monument right there. He takes the pillar that he was sleeping on, not a great night's sleep, takes this rock, and he moves it up, and he creates a pillar, and he calls it Bethel, God within. And that space becomes holy to him because what Jacob did, and this is a process for us all, especially in our prayer lives, what Jacob did isn't to manufacture a God moment. He simply looked back and he said, oh, wow, God was at work there and I didn't see it, but now I can see it. And so if I see it, I need to build something to remind myself that God was in this place 
and I, I did not know. What if we walked around everywhere in our workspace, in our lives, in our free time, in our vacations, and just every space we walk into, we just say, surely God is in this place, and I, I don't know. When we leave, say, surely God was in that place, and I, I did not know. How much would that transform everything you do? To recognize that if we're just there in the present, that's a prayer. One of the most like, like huge things that I discovered uh, in studying all this prayer stuff and the big revelation for me in all of this uh, is we read the Bible a lot in church. Um, I don't know if you have a habit of doing that at home, uh, but if you do and you're reading through the Gospels, every single time we see Jesus speak, every single time we see someone speak to Jesus, that's a prayer. That's talking to God. <laughs> So every interaction that God has, that Jesus has in his incarnational moment here, is actually a prayer. And he's not using big fancy words. And in fact, most of the interaction that he does is to heal, to create wholeness, and to redeem people. That's what his conversations do. That's what his actions do. His actions are prayers just as much as his words are. I'm obsessed with this uh, rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, he wrote a book on the Sabbath, which is like absolutely unreal. Uh, but he also was very good friends with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and he marched with uh, MLK uh, at the March on Selma. And after marching with him, uh, he was asked what it was like. And he said, it's as if my feet were praying. Our actions can be prayer just as much as our fancy words and our pretense. Your whole life can be a prayer. Your whole life can be a prayer. And the thing about that whole your whole life can be a prayer thing, we often think of prayer as something we do for something later, right? Something we do for when we're in heaven or, or after this time. But prayer is something that we do for this life right here. And your prayer can be your life. When you look back on that deathbed and you go, what did I do? How did I live this thing? And you see all the exciting parts, you can say, I lived it like a prayer. I love the poet Mary Oliver, and she has this great quote. It says, what are you going to do with this one wild, precious life? And I thought about that in terms of what God did with the one wild, precious life in Jesus, and that was to hand that away. It was to be completely present right here and, and validate and dignify the fact that this life truly matters and that it's not all about something that happens next, but Jesus cares deeply, deeply, for what's going on in your life right now. I think a very, a, a, the least compelling version of Christianity is you, you need to pray this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven. That says nothing about what we're supposed to do right now. And I think that's why it's losing ground in so many things, because they're like, yeah, that's great. But like, what about now? What the heck do I do about my life? Like my stresses, my worries, my tragedies? How do I stay present? How do I stay here? And Jesus takes a phenomenal amount of time to cover that. He's constantly being present. He's constantly being right here, right now. But we don't have this problem just in Christianity. All of us have this problem in our daily lives. We are constantly wanting to be somewhere else. I guarantee you, as I'm speaking right now, someone is thinking about what they want to eat for lunch right after this, right? <laughs> there's, there's something in us that no matter where we are, my wife's family is the worst with this. Whenever we eat there, they will talk about foods they've had at other times or foods they're going to eat later. So we'll be eating one thing, and it'll be like, oh, do you remember that lasagna that we had like on Thursday night? And I'm like, we're here. We need to eat what we're eating here, and please stop talking about food while I'm eating food. It's driving me insane. Anyway, this is group therapy, and she'll probably listen to the podcast. Um, but 
that we have an enormous problem in our culture with remaining present. And I think stress, worry, 90% of it would go away immediately if we could just figure out how to be here, how to be present in the moment. Because all that worry, all that stress, worry is simply being held prisoner by the moment that comes after this one. It's, it's being held prisoner in the next moment and not being right here completely present. Uh, we're on our phones all the time looking for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Uh, the iPhone has started sending, and you probably noticed this, it started sending alerts to tell you how long you've been on your phone, like your screen time use. I did not care for that, so I turned that off immediately. <laughs> but they got me on my watch. This is a vulnerable moment here, but I'm going to show you exactly how much time this has, it, this just happened this morning. I was like, dang it, they got me. Uh, it was down 16% last week for an average of two hours and 22 minutes a day. I'm sorry, that's what your pastor is spending your time on. Two, two hours and 22 minutes a day. But just think how often we're pulling that device out that's taking us out of this moment and bringing us into something else. Think of all of that stress that enters our lives because we scroll through social media and we see people doing stuff that we think we should be doing, when in fact, they're not actually doing any of that anyway, right? We have a tremendous problem with being right here, right now. Jesus understood this, and that's the reason that he spends so much time healing and so much time just sitting and eating with people. Part of this series is going to be, we're doing breakfast every single morning. Uh, it, it, every single Sunday, and those are going to be pancakes every single Sunday, and by the end of this, no one's going to want to eat a pancake. But we're doing pancakes every single Sunday because if you really read the Gospels, the compelling thing about Jesus was he was always eating and drinking with people. In fact, at a certain point, they start calling him a drunkard because he's always eating and drinking with people, and the reason that he's doing that, guys, is to create a picture for us to see, like, this is how it's supposed to be lived out. It's supposed to be lived out in moments that make people more whole. And even more than that, it's supposed to be around a table. And the idea of a table back then is drastically different than our idea of a table now. A table now is just simply a functional device. We sit down at it, we have a meal, maybe we pay our bills at it, maybe we throw up our laptop on it or something, but it's not what it used to be. A table used to be this beautiful picture. There was not really anything with four legs. It was just in the home. They would have a designated space. There's like one living room and one like living room. Like people are sleeping in there, people are eating in there, they're doing everything in this one living quarter. And at night, for the nightly meal, which was the biggest meal, that whole room would become a table. And basically what that meant was that while you were at that table, you were honor-bound to protect each other, and it was a signifying thing that said, you belong here. You belong to this family. If you sit at this table, you now belong to us. That's what that meant. And so when we see Jesus doing radical things around tables, he pisses a lot of people off around a table. Like, all of the stuff he does with the Pharisees, that's around a table most of the time. And all the stuff with eating with tax collectors and sinners, that's around a table. And he does that because of that honor-bound society. He understands that that's the most beautiful and compelling picture, and this is the place that we're supposed to do that. And we're supposed to follow that. We're supposed to actually dive into that. So this morning, I want to talk about prayer as practice. Prayer as your life, the life that you lead, and what that means. And, and in the scriptures, and in our biblical tradition, we have this wonderful, fancy religious word for that, uh, and it's called discipleship. Can everyone say discipleship? 
slapped me right back to my Southern Baptist days. Uh, <laughs> discipleship is a very scary religious word, uh, and it sounds very boring upon first hearing. Like, discipleship is usually, uh, in my mind, it conjures up images of, like, you know, old Bible study rooms and, and going through a book of a Bible one verse at a time. Like, that kind of stuff uh, is known as discipleship. But actually, discipleship in Jesus' day was radically, radically different. Uh, what a disciple was was more of an apprentice, and it was an imitator. So a disciple of a rabbi, especially, but in any craft, uh, say it's a blacksmith or something like that, in that day, a disciple would literally leave his home. If it wasn't for his father's craft, they would leave their home and they would go live with their mentor or their, their rabbi or their leader, whoever was teaching them this craft, and they would soak themselves in it. And if you were a disciple of a rabbi, of a religious leader, your job was to be as much like the rabbi as possible. There are, there are rabbinic texts about watching the way that your rabbi picks up his food and eats it. So that you're supposed to imitate it to that level. Literally, the way that the rabbi would walk, the students, the disciples, would have to imitate the steps that he would take. That's how deep this stuff goes. A disciple was not just a casual sort of classroom learning environment thing that we've come to learn about it now. No, it was like a lifetime event. You were called to do exactly what the rabbi does. This is why when, when we see that, uh, that Bible story about Peter walking on the water and Jesus walking on the water, we go, oh, how brave was Peter to jump out of that boat? The truth is, that's exactly what all of them were supposed to be doing. Because Jesus was out there on the water, and they're supposed to be imitating every single thing that he does. So really, Peter was the only one that went like, oh, wait, well, he's out there. I should be doing this. You should be doing this. We should all be doing this. And he goes out there, and I think a large part of him losing his faith in that is realizing, oh, I'm the only one that stepped out the boat. <laughs> like, the other guys did not come with me, and they left me here. But that's what we're designed to do. We're literally designed to imitate Christ in everything. So how are we imitating Jesus? How are we imitating this person that lives so radically and so presently? The answer is we have to learn to be a whole lot more aware of the moment that we are in and a whole lot less worried about the one that comes after this one. To be here, to be present, is to imitate Christ. Now, I think the word imitate often gets a bad rap. Uh, because we think of this. When I actually Googled, I wanted to see where the word imitation came from. So I Googled uh, how to uh, imitate someone. Do we have that slide there? There it is. Uh, when I put in who invented imit, the first thing came up was imitation crab. <laughs> so not just imitation, but imitation crab. They skipped imitation and went straight to imitation crab. So I got curious. What is imitation crab and how is it made? And it turns out it's absolutely gross. Uh, it's made from a fish paste uh, and then it's put together with egg whites and then they like throw it through this whole thing. And then the thing that you're eating is really more of like an egg white starchy fish pasty goodness uh, that goes into cheap sushi rolls and gas stations. Um, this is a perfect picture of what we think of when we think of imitation. Right? It's supposed to be, it's like, it's not the real thing. In fact, it's kind of a knockoff. We are not called to be knockoffs of Christ. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to be disciples. True imitation is this. This is where imitation actually comes from. That's the next slide there, TJ, I believe. Yeah, this is according to Wikipedia. This uh, is Dionysian 
imitatio. <laughs> and that is where we get the word imitation from. Uh, but this is the uh, influential literary method of imitation as formula by Greek author, I'm not even gonna try that one, uh, in the first century BC. When he conceived it as rhetorical practice of emulating, adapting, reworking, and enriching a source text by an earlier author. So it's supposed to enrich. It's supposed to actually go further. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul, in a lot of his books and a lot of his letters, he talks about the idea of putting on the mind of Christ. And that sounds like a super heady, weird thing, but the truth is, that goes a step beyond imitation, and that says you're not only just gonna think God's thoughts, but now you're going to think like God. When you're following this Jesus tradition, the whole goal is to get in a mindset of actually not just thinking and quoting what Jesus did, but actually learning to think like Jesus so that you can go further. Jesus said it, and we forget it all the time, but he's like, you're gonna do even greater things than these. But so often, we're just like, no, 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 just stick, stick to what he did, right? We have a picture of Jesus that's too good, that we can never be like him, but he doesn't believe that about you. <laughs> he never said that. He said, no, you're going to do far greater things than these. Keep going. I just picture, it's like if, if someone handed uh, you a football and said, go create a sport around this. I want you, I've built this football, I've built this beautiful thing, now go and do something, and then left for like 2,000 years and then came back and we were still just all staring at the ball. <laughs> like, what will it do? And you would come back and you'd be like, you're supposed to do something with it. Like, go out and do something with it. It's not supposed to just stay here. You're supposed to be good imitators, which means you're supposed to be enriching this tradition, not just letting it stay stagnant not just letting it stay boring. How much of church is just boring? How much of this is just boring? No, I mean, but like, the, the, we're, supposed, we're called to do crazy, awesome things, and I think so often we get bogged down by the idea or the worry that we're not good enough to do that yet. That I gotta get all my ducks in a row, or I haven't been to church in a while, or I haven't prayed in a while. I, maybe I need to warm up or something, and the truth is you do not. Scripture is absolutely full of people that are on the outs, that are in the weirdest parts of their lives, and Jesus comes to them and just basically says, like, you're good right where you are. Meister Eckhart has a quote that says, where you are, so God finds you and takes you. Where you are, so God finds you and takes you. What a relief. That should give us full permission to be absolutely present even in the worst moments of our life. Even in the craziness, we're just called to sort of just sit in it and realize we're not sitting alone. That this Jesus is right there with us. Uh, my brother almost died three times last year. Um, one was a motorcycle accident and then the other two times uh, were complications uh, to do with his motorcycle accident. He actually ripped his aorta, which is a very, I didn't know what an aorta was until he ripped it, uh, but it's a very important organ uh, or vein. Um, and when we got to the hospital, the doctors basically said, like, we barely ever do this surgery because most of the people that suffer this accident die on the scene, uh, which was just super great news when you're sitting there like, uh-huh, well, it could go on, <laughs> no more information. Um, 
he was in Cedar Sinai, and uh, he had to go back because uh, they fixed it, which was incredible. They just like put these little two micro things up there and zipped it back together. Um, but it tore again. And the scariest thing when we went there was the doctors couldn't figure out why. Uh, they're basically like, again, we don't do the surgery often, and usually when we do, it sticks. We have no idea uh, why this thing has torn again. So he had to go through the same surgery. And I just remember feeling, sitting in that, that waiting room, that I had been in just a couple months before where I'd thought we might lose him. And, and growing up, I moved seven times before I turned 14. My brother and I are just brothers. We're like best, best friends. This is the closest human being I have to me. And I remember going like, I'm gonna lose the closest human being I have to me. And then just this miracle moment of him coming back. And then again, it happens. And I'm sitting in the exact same space, just, thinking like, what is going on? Why? So much of our prayer should and can be, why God? Why? That's an okay prayer to ask. And it's okay to be angry too. It's okay to be like, don't be a jerk here. What is going on? So I, I would spend the night with him uh, in the hospital and it's just not a fun, hospitals are terrible places and, and especially when you're sleeping in one. Um, but I'd stay the night there, and, uh, and I read someone came to relieve me of my shift. Uh, I think it was my parents or something. Uh, and I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll catch an Uber, and I'll go home. And Cedar sinai is, like, in the heart of, of West Hollywood. It's, it's, like, you know, pretty far out there. Um, and I walked out, and it was, like, in the middle of rush hour. Uh, and so I looked at my phone, and it said it had taken an hour and a half to get from Cedar sinai back to home. And so I thought to myself, I was like, well... Maybe I'll just walk like a little bit further. Like I'll just walk like towards like that main drag on Santa Monica Boulevard and see if once I get there the traffic's any better or the, the Uber's a little bit cheaper or something, uh, and I'll go from there. And I got to that place and I looked and it still said it would take like an hour and a half. And I'm literally staring at the traffic that I would be sitting in. And I just thought to myself, I was like, an hour and a half. I wonder if I could walk this faster <laughs> than a car could drive me. And sure enough, I threw it into Google, an hour 15. <laughs> so I started walking, thinking at some point, I'll just grab an Uber. Uh, and I started walking and I kept thinking like, why, why am I doing this? It's kind of a weird, like, I should just get in the car. Like, why am I out here? And then, as because I'm a pastor and I think like this, then I started thinking, God, why do you have me out here? What, what am I doing? And I just kept walking, and I kept walking, and I kept walking, and kept walking. Before I knew it, I'm in Beverly Hills, and I'm, just, I'm still walking down Santa Monica Boulevard. And what's interesting is nobody walks on that street. <laughs> so I'm walking, and I'm like narrowly escaping cars. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm praying the whole time, because in all honesty, I'm just I'm infuriated uh, that God would put my family through this, that God would put my brother through this. Uh, and so I'm just sort of angry walking with God uh, down the street, all of a sudden it just kind of dawned on me and I felt like, and I never do this, I don't, I don't really fully subscribe to all the spooky weirdness, but I really felt like in that moment, God was like, I just brought you out here because I want to spend time with you. I just want you to be present with me. I just want to take a walk with you. And so I walked all the way back home <laughs> and found myself in my apartment an hour and 15 minutes later. <laughs> But that, that very, all of the anger, all of the anxiety, all of the fear, all of the just the wanting to just tear God apart, all of that was solved by him just simply saying, hey, I just want to be with you right now.
And I want you to understand that I am with you. And we've talked about this a lot in this series, but that's, that's tough because we just don't, we don't have a headspace and we don't talk about it enough in our religious conversations. We don't talk about the fact that the pain and the hurt and the suffering and the moments that we just want to kill God, those are actually the most transformative moments if we truly allow them to do their work in us. If we can truly stay present with them and hang in there and be in those uncomfortable spots. Because if we're imitating Jesus, if we're really gonna be good imitators, we have to look at the fact that Jesus always goes to some of the weirdest, most uncomfortable, strangest places. He told his disciples, last thing, right? They've been imitating him for like three years now. They're watching how he eats, they're watching how he moves. And the very last thing he tells them is, okay guys, now go and make disciples, make imitators of all nations. Now, when we read that as Americans, we tend to read that almost colonial, right? Like, <laughs> go and colonize all nations, right? But what Jesus is talking about is way more shocking than that. Because you didn't do that. In an ancient society, you stayed within your tribe. Your tribe and your family was your deal, and you did not go outside of those lines. What he's talking about here isn't about scale, it's about depth. He's asking them, how deeply did you pay attention to the way I lived? All of those boundaries I crossed, all of those lines I crossed because love was leading us there. Where are you going to let love lead you? That means all nations. That means all races. That means all people, all orientations, everything. How deeply were you paying attention to where love led you? And will you let love lead you into those uncomfortable spaces? and actually imitate me. If there's one story we have that is like the most clear example that we are supposed to step into uncomfortable situations, uh, it's the story of the woman at the well. So I'm gonna read through this. Um, oh, I'm sorry, no, that's just more about imitation crab. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, though in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So let's stop right there. Uh, this is a historical moment. John the Baptist, is a character that gets mentioned, and really we only kind of hear about him baptizing Jesus, and then he gets his head chopped off. <laughs> and those are the kind of the only scenes we see him in. Uh, but the importance there is, why is John in there at all? And the answer is, historically, we have more history behind John than we do behind Jesus. We have more history and historical documentation to point to the fact that John the Baptist was a real human being than we do Jesus the Christ. And that is because John's ministry was absolutely bonkers huge. His disciples were everywhere. Uh, and so basically what this is saying is that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' disciples, have now started not only to outnumber John, but look, John was the one doing the baptizing in that scenario. In this scenario, Jesus is letting them imitate them to the point, imitate himself to the point that now they're doing the baptisms. He now has more little John the Baptist than John the Baptist had disciples. And he's empowering them and saying, look, you can do this stuff too. Um, so uh, he left Judea and he went once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now we don't have a map or anything, but I want you to picture it like this. Imagine a road trip from Los Angeles to San Francisco, right? If you've done this trip before, you know the fastest way is to go up the five. Right? You can just go through, but it is terrifyingly boring. And then you can go up the 101, and that's beautiful, but it's going to take you a lot longer. Now, the way that they're going, 
The fastest way is through Samaria, but he did not have to go that way. He had to go because that's where love was leading him and that's what was compelling him to move, but Jesus was doing something absolutely radical. You see, the Samaritans were a group that the, the Jewish people and the Samaritan people were not so friendly. And I mean that in like the biggest sense ever. They hated each other. The Samaritans had their own temple system on a mount called Mount Gerasim, and it rivaled the temple that was in Jerusalem. They truly believed that their mountain was the holy place, that God was on their side, and God hates the Jewish people, and the Jewish people thought God hates the Samaritans. And the most ironic thing about all of this is that they're literally blood-related. <laughs> How many family members do you have like this? They're, they're literally of the same tribe, but they split early on. And so the Samaritans took on the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, which are, you know, there's a lot of story in there, and there's also just a lot of law and a lot of rules. But they ditched all the rest of the New Testament because those stories were about David and how David was on the side of the Jewish people and God was on the side of the Jewish people, and they just simply did not believe that. So they were hated by the Jewish people. So a good, pious Jewish man, if he's taking a journey and he's on that road trip from San Francisco, or I'm sorry, from LA to San Francisco, picture, picture going through Las Vegas and up and around through Reno and then coming back down to San Francisco. They would go around to Jericho, which is way, way out of the way, simply to avoid this landmass where the Samaritans lived. Because even to step through it was an insult to their Jewish tradition. And now we look at Jesus, and he's, he's directly pointing a path towards this forbidden zone. He's intentionally going through there, and he, he takes it even a step further. Now, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Uh, the plot ground, Jacob, I'm sorry, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, there's a couple important things here. Uh, an ancient well, uh, there's only really one access point. Uh, so what Jesus was doing when he's sitting by the well is he's literally blocking the well. Uh, whoever comes up to the well would have to ask Jesus to move out of the way uh, in order to get water from the well. So sometimes when we read stories like this, we kind of think like this is all happenstance and this is just, oh, it's just kind of happening and look at what Jesus did with this random situation. Everything in this story, Jesus is sitting in a place where someone would actually have to ask him to move. He is actively looking for a conversation with a Samaritan person. And what happens is even more shocking than just a person. It turns out uh, that it is a woman. So next slide, please. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. That's putting it lightly. Um, I read uh, one scholar, uh, Chad Myers, uh, wrote about this situation. And he wrote about it like this. He said, this is, is a shocking, terrifying situation for the disciples. <laughs> so the disciples are gone, but when they come back and see that Jesus is alone as a Jewish man, talking with a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman, and he's by a well, all of this is going to be a shocking experience. Men did not go near wells. In fact, like, like women would do their laundry and disrobe near wells because they just figured no man is going to come near here for like miles on end. It just was not a place that a man went to in that culture. And here Jesus is sitting on the well. <laughs> 
And then this woman comes up to her and starts, he starts talking to her. He starts talking to her. That wasn't done at all. Their worlds did not overlap. This is not a Venn diagram situation. These two were very separate, and they did not talk to each other. What Jesus was doing was he's literally breaking all of the rules to reach out to this person, to reach out to this woman at the well. All right, so, sorry, next slide. Uh, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God uh, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who, is a, who uh, gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Next slide there. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, other translations, and if you've heard this story before, it probably said something along the lines of living water. Just this translation just doesn't go there. Uh, but living water is not a term that Jesus made up. It wasn't like he was coming up with some weird symbol. Living water was water that either came from the sky, so it was fresh and it was pure, and it was declared clean. So that would come from the sky, and if it fell into a puddle, it would be fine. But if anything touched that puddle, the water is impure and unclean. Streams were living water. And this was the only water that could be used in the temple to make someone clean for a, for a ritual purification bath, a baptism. That's the only water you could use. Just a drop of living water could transform an entire pool into living water in the Jewish mind. So what this woman is saying, and later in the story, which we don't have time for, we figure out that she's actually, she's been married five times and she's living with this man and, and, and she's kind of in a scandalous position. The reason she's there at noon, people draw water in the morning and in the evening. The, the reason she's there at noon is because she absolutely wants to avoid a conversation with anyone because she's marked in that town. And so when Jesus said, I have living water, the literal response was not because she's thirsty, but because she wants so badly to be, to be made whole and pure again. So she tells Jesus, give me this water. I need this water. And when the disciples come back and they see Jesus talking, they're absolutely, their minds are blown. Like Jesus should not be doing this. So the call, guys, when they say, like, go into all nations, when he tells them that, they're going to be searching real deep and running through all of these different stories where they saw Jesus move into places where love should not go. And Jesus, sorry, I just heard Chelsea, that was awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, that love does not go. And yet Jesus pushes it there into the uncomfortable, into the tension, into the craziness. That's where love works the best. I took this picture uh, this week. Do you have that picture of the, the sky there? Uh, not, the, not the sunset, but the one before it? Boom. Um, it was very rainy this week. Uh, and as I was walking, I looked up, and I get like really uh, just moody whenever the, the weather changes. And so I was just kind of like, oh, this ugly sky, it's gray. Uh, but it, it dawned on me, these clouds, are super gray and it's super ugly. But that, that morning had been this like bright, beautiful, amazingly clear morning. Like when it rains in LA, 
and you go out and you can see the ocean, like you can see for just miles and miles and miles, and it just it proves how much pollution we're breathing in on a daily basis. Um, but these clouds, like they're ugly at first, right? And and I I just thought about that in our lives, like a lot of us in the first stage of life, we're in this sort of bright morning, beautiful, like everything's fine, I'm all good, cheery, here we go. Uh, and then the clouds show up, and the gray shows up, and the bad stuff shows up. And I think about how often we, as just the clouds, kind of just, or the sky, just bemoan the arrival of the clouds and say to the light, like, if only you could just get us back to where we were before. If only we could go back to that bright, beautiful morning. Why can't we just go back there? That's what worry is. That's what anxiety is. It's saying, why can't it be like it was before? Why can't it be like just that beautiful, bright first phase? I think the light's response is, if you'd only let me break you. <laughs> you'd see that I can turn that gray from gray to something astoundingly beautiful, which looks like this just a couple hours later. The light has to break us and bend us to actually transform us and to move us forward. To burn through that gray is going to take an embrace of that painful light, but in that, we can have profoundly beautiful moments. So the next time something rolls into your life that feels unmanageable, too crazy, too hard, look at it and invite light in. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for, uh, for the ability to just talk to you, God, um, and to understand that we can bring you into the most uncomfortable darkest parts of ourselves, uh, and you're perfectly comfortable there. Uh, I just pray over all of us that are in this space and in this room um, that we would lean into that practice and then that prayer rhythm as we go on this week. Amen. Um, so guys, if you don't mind standing, we're going to do something a little bit different.